Hello and welcome to Turkey Book Talk episode number 167. Thank you for listening. I'm William Armstrong here in Istanbul. In this episode we hear from Sarah Neil Smith. She is assistant professor in the Department of Art History, Theory and Criticism at the Maryland Institute College of Art and the author of Metrics of Modernity, Art and Development in Post-War Turkey, which is published by University of California Press. It's a very rich and generously illustrated book, part art history, part sociology and part early Cold War economic study. It paints a vivid portrait of Turkey's art world in the mid-20th century and how that world reflected ideas of national development, individual enterprise and global integration at the start of the multi-party era, the dawn of the Cold War. Before we get started with the interview, remember you can find our entire archive of episodes going right back to 2015 over at turkeybooktalk.com. We're also on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter. And you can support the podcast by becoming a Turkey Book Talk member via Patreon. Joining as a Turkey Book Talk member gets you numerous extras, including an exclusive discount of 35% off the price of all books published in IB Taurus and Bloomsbury's excellent Turkey and Ottoman History series. Every one of the hundreds of Turkey Ottoman History titles published by IB Taurus Bloomsbury is available to Turkey Book Talk members at a 35% discount. Members get a special code to use at the online checkout, and that deal is valid for all physical books, pre-orders, and ebooks. If you'd rather read these interviews than listen to them then good news because turkey book talk members receive a pdf transcript of every interview via email as soon as the episode is published you also get pdf transcripts of the entire archive of turkey book talk interviews when you sign up including many extras that have not previously been published on the podcast Members also receive an archive of over 200 book reviews written by myself, ranging from Turkish and international fiction and poetry to history, politics and journalism related to the Middle East and Europe. And finally, I also send links to a couple of articles related to the subject of the episode in the email that I send out to members upon publication, which is obviously ideal if you want to delve that bit deeper. To become a member, just go to Turkey Book Talk's Patreon page and pledge $3, €3 or £2.50 per episode. If you're feeling particularly generous and want to pledge more, then of course you'll be more than welcome. But so long as you pledge $3, €3 or £2.50 or above per episode, membership is entirely at your own discretion. There are no prior commitments or strings attached. You'll be free to sign off whenever you want. But now on to our conversation with Sarah Neil Smith. I started by asking her what she wanted to achieve when she started researching this subject. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, as you mentioned, the 50s is this kind of moment of really dramatic change politically, sociologically, economically in Turkey, because at the kind of bigger macroscopic level, Turkey is really, really making huge efforts to align itself with the Western bloc after World War II and signing on to sort of American style economic development programs is one of the primary ways that the administration goes about doing that. So elements like joining the Marshall Plan, becoming a founding member of NATO. And as an art historian coming at this period, I came at it from the the perspective of the, the creatives, right? So my question was, how did artists and gallerists and critics deal with these kind of huge macroscopic global changes 
in their creative work, in their work in the studio or in the gallery or on the page. And it was really actually quite a surprise to me to learn the extent to which they were explicitly thinking and talking about these issues of economic development in particular. So yes, in the book, I have four or five figures who were kind of my guide, let's say, to the art world in Istanbul and Ankara in the 1950s. A couple of artists, including Ali Berger and Firia Karal, both female artists, and a couple of gallerist critics, um, including Bülent Ecevit, later prime minister, and Adalet Cimcoz, a gallerist and writer based in Istanbul. And I sort of follow uh, through each of their activities in these different realms to trace the ways that they were thinking about these larger changes. And we're going to go uh, go into a bit of detail about some of those characters a bit later on. This is an era when the influence of mainly U.S. ideas, really, U.S.-driven ideas about the free market influenced the Turkish art scene in the 1950s. So there was this emphasis on privatization, individual consumption, and that was reflected in aesthetic taste. So that taste moved away, as you describe in the book, from representative didactic forms that conveyed messages about social reality, essentially, towards more abstraction, individual expression, self-expression, not conformism. And you talk in the book about how the Turkish art world began to express those ideas in various forms, how the artists should prioritize individual vision really above all else. And you also saw the emergence of abstract painting in Turkish form and that being a particularly effective means to this end. Just talk about that, how taste was beginning to reflect these broader international tendencies. Yeah, absolutely. I think in some ways to understand the 50s, you of course have to understand what the architectural historian Sibel Bozdoğan calls the long 1930s, which is to say this earlier moment in that sort of high Republican era when artists such as Bedrami Eyubolu, who becomes a kind of key example of the Turkish artist for me in this context, when artists are really making their way through a state-directed artistic system. And that's exactly the context in which, as you mentioned, questions of figuration, of what images and styles should be used to illustrate the larger political ideals of the republic are really at the forefront. So uh, Bejirami Eyubolo, for example, gets his start in the 1930s. He attends the Istanbul Fine Arts Academy. He is studying with instructors who promote images of a kind of emergent republic. We see a lot of figuration images of the peasant, for example, are a kind of staple at this moment. And then as he progresses through this art world over time, and as we hit the post-war period, the 1950s, he begins to participate in these more these international dialogues around abstraction more. As you mentioned, it's a move away from this idea that art should serve a kind of illustrative or pedagogical purpose in the name of the nation and towards this idea, well, that perhaps art should speak uh, a kind of international lingua franca of abstraction as a new way to indicate Turkey's own kind of participation in this in this new global community. 
Ayubolu is participates in that in many different ways, including at the 1958 Brussels World's Fair, where his gigantic uh, mosaic that he produces there is a huge hit, a crowd pleaser, wins a major award, and therefore seems in this moment in 1958 as kind of the uh, confirmation of Turkey's successful entrance into these international dialogues of art through that language of abstraction. One of the chapters is about Gallery Meyer, and this is a very interesting case study because it was the first privately owned art gallery in Turkey. It opened in Istanbul, in Beyoğlu, in 1950, and it closed in 1955. I think I'm right in saying that it's uh, there's a little plaque that's there in the street outside where it was located near uh, Fitchen, the restaurant. I wonder if you could talk about that gallery. You know, why did it take so long for a private, privately owned art gallery to open, first of all, but also what it represented and where that fits into this picture? Absolutely. Gallery Maya um, and its founder, Adalet Cimjoz, and her collaborator, Sabahattin Eyubolu, were in a lot of ways the starting point of this project, in part because as well as establishing a gallery, they wrote a lot. They wrote a lot about their own gallery. They wrote a lot about their broader thoughts of the role or importance of the visual arts in Turkish culture more generally. And so it was an incredibly kind of rich thread that I was able to follow to try and understand this moment more generally. As you said, yes, Gallery Maya um, opened 1950 on Kalavi It's You can still see the building right there. And it was really, in some ways, I think, Jim Jo's and Eyubolu's attempt to follow up on and undertake goals that they had already been thinking about actually for quite a long time. So Eyubolu was not the public face of the gallery, but was a kind of behind the scenes collaborator. He was a kind of very well-known literary scholar, translator, and he had as early as the 1930s actually already been arguing, let's keep an eye on this state involvement in the arts. Maybe too much state involvement is actually harmful to artists' creativity. He saw it as having a sort of suffocating or maybe overly deterministic role in the art market. But at that early moment in the 30s, they just weren't really able to um, get something like that off the ground. By the 50s, however, Jim Jo's had been on the scene for a while. She had emerged in a number of different kind of corners of the cultural world, including as Turkey's first gossip columnist. So she already had this kind of history of, for example, policing and commenting on Republican norms of clothing and behavior in those gossip columns. She also had a career as a voiceover actor in popular films. So she was already engaged in a number of different sectors. And through that kind of scene and set of connections, she was able to open this gallery in 1950. As you said, it was now a moment where this rise of the idea of private enterprise as a salutary or positive element of a kind of national landscape was much, much more prominent than, say, in the 1930s. And so the idea that perhaps state involvement 
needed an antidote in the form of a private gallery was much more uh, kind of normal. It could really gain traction by this point. And by all accounts, while it was still open, Maya was a huge success. It was this kind of gathering place for the city's elites. They threw some great parties. They had uh, students from the academy down the street in Fundukla coming up the hill. They had eminent literary figures like Ahmed Hamdi Tompanar or Syed Faik, the novelist. They're all sort of commingling in this very salon-like atmosphere. So it is clear that not only was the kind of notion of a private gallery newly possible, but that it was it was really needed and encouraged and welcomed by the artistic community there in Istanbul. Another establishment along similar lines actually was open in Ankara. It was called the Helicon Association Gallery. And that one was open in 1953 and was basically the second privately owned art gallery in Turkey. That one also closed within a few years in 1956. And it was a project, very interestingly, overseen by Bülent Ecevit. Obviously, he would go on in later years to become Turkey's prime minister. Before we talk in a bit more detail about Ecevit and his writings on art, Could you just talk about that gallery? Um, Another interesting case study. What was different about that one in comparison with Gallery Maya? The Helicon Association Gallery there in Ankara was, on the one hand, really directly inspired by Gallery Maya, something that Ejivit was particularly open about in his own writings. He was much like Jim Joes and Eyubolo, writing criticism and commentary about his own gallery as well as running the gallery himself. And it was also kind of distinct from Maya and that it was a, a younger generation. In other words, it was a generation that was looking a bit less back to that pre-war period, the Republican period then in the 1930s, and was more endeavoring to create an association, an arts association or an arts gathering space that was modeled on ones that Ejevit himself had experienced in London in the 1940s. Ejevit was for a brief time press attaché at the embassy, the Turkish embassy in London, and had been to these kind of arts associations there. So for the community gathering around Helicon, it was actually much more about avant-garde music, for one, and the composer Bülent Arel was a really key figure in directing a group of musicians known as the Helicon Orchestra. And when it came to visual arts, they really placed a lot of emphasis on abstract painting. Ejevit had a whole set of theories about the way in which abstract painting or Turkish citizens' encounters with abstract painting would promote the principles of individualism and kind of democratic free thinking, which we can delve into in a moment or two. But to kind of mark off that distinction between the two galleries, you have this kind of long history of Istanbul as a cultural capital, the center, the sort of historical center of Turkey's cultural elites. And that was very much the kind of community that was feeding into Gallery Maya there on Kalavisokak. And Ankara was this sort of younger, upstart, new capital being energized by a community of younger intellectuals based there in Ankara at that time. So let's get into Ejevit. He obviously is a fascinating character, particularly in this nascent period that he had as a journalist, art critic and gallery owner. And obviously he he later served five separate terms as PM. 
and had a very turbulent life. But this period that you're talking about in the book is obviously before all of that. He was writing a lot about these theories that he had of art and the role of art and how art and the individual's interaction with artistic works could basically reshape society, reshape or even rewire people's ideas about their position in society. Just delve into those ideas that he had, where that fits into this bigger context in this period of his life. The Educate uh, articles on art, I will say, were one of the great surprises of the research for this book. It really is a kind of lost history or lost episode in our understanding of this really towering political and intellectual figure that at this period he was, as I said, not only running this gallery, Helicon, but also writing extensively about these theories that you mentioned. For a little bit of context, this was a moment where abstract art was just coming into the Turkish art scene. And the main location where artists could exhibit every year, which was the state-run annual state exhibition of painting and sculpture, wasn't yet that accommodating to abstract art. So you had one or two canvases sneak through, but for the most part, it was landscapes or other figural forms that you were seeing in these annual exhibitions. Ejavit, therefore, really aims to provide a kind of alternative space that both complements and challenges the limits of the state exhibition. And for him, the stakes were really high. They were not just about supporting a group of artists that were not supported by the state infrastructure. It was actually about changing the status of Turkish democracy for him. So his theory was that when a Turkish citizen walked into Helicon Gallery and saw an abstract painting that didn't give them a straightforward didactic message. They had to begin using their own kind of powers of cognition and sense of individual intellectual knowledge to begin drawing conclusions on their own. And I loved the um, term you just used there that it was kind of a rewiring that he was advocating there. These were not actually ideas isolated to Ejevit alone. In fact, it was quite on par with conversations that were going on in the U.S. at the time, centering on places like the Museum of Modern Art in New York, where also you had communities of intellectuals arguing that by circulating abstract arts, by confronting viewers with these challenging artworks, you would teach them and challenge them to cultivate the skills that you need to be a free-thinking citizen in a Western democracy. I think some listeners might find some of this quite surprising because, you know, Edgevitt's position of emphasizing the importance of cultivating individuals to be sensitive to art. Yeah, it seems paradoxical because even in this era, before he really entered politics, he was a staunch CHP supporter against really the more economically liberalizing government of the Democrat Party uh, during the 50s. And at the same time, he was also strongly against state patronage of arts in favor more of these grassroots activities that he was involved in, grassroots creativity. 
I just wonder, I mean, that did that paradox occur to you as you were doing the research? I suppose perhaps it can only really be understood in this particular early Cold War era. And also particularly with the Western orientation that Edge of It had as an individual. You know, he spent years in, or at least some time, I think, in the US and the UK. So he was particularly attuned to that. So perhaps it's something just particular to him that he could uh, contain these contradictions possibly within himself. Another way to think of it is that maybe this is the origins of Edgevit the centrist that uh, we came to know once he entered politics, in that Edgevit at the end of the 50s uh, faced this kind of dilemma of whether to choose art or politics. And he's very, very explicit on that point. I found some really interesting documents regarding his time in the U.S. in the late 50s when he was studying at the Neiman Foundation for Journalism at Harvard University and was called back from his studies in the U.S., this sort of potential humanist track, let's say, and actually became then a member of parliament. And that was the turning point for him when he abandoned his plan to go see a Picasso show in Chicago and instead returned to Ankara to enter politics officially. And after that, we see him becoming the edge of it that I think is kind of known more publicly now. But I think in a lot of ways, those contradictions that you're identifying in his work in the arts or that become particularly clear in his work in the arts can also be seen as, in some ways, the seeds of his Um, what would later become his defining sort of political identity as a centrist. In other words, as someone that is trying to both negotiate and bridge perhaps often competing priorities from opposite sides of the political spectrum. And during the research project, I believe you visited Edgevit's widow in Ankara, Rashen Edgevit. What was that like as an experience? Time with Russia and Ejevit was absolutely one of the highlights uh, of my time there researching this book. She is, was in her own right, an incredible thinker and political figure. And I was very, very lucky that she and her sister, Asude Aral, really welcomed me into their home shared with me their memories of the 1950s, shared with me their memories of time spent at Helipon Gallery, and also shared with me the many kind of writings and photographs and things that they had held on to from that time. One interesting tidbit that I learned during time with her was that Rashan Ejivit was at that time actually also connected to the United States Information Service there in Ankara. She was working in one of their offices in an administrative capacity. And so she also forms in a pretty substantial way a kind of direct connection to these ongoing early Cold War dialogues circulating between the U.S. and Turkey around what forms of democracy are uh, appropriate at that moment in history. So both an incredible, wonderful person that really, really shaped my research process and also a kind of invaluable source for understanding what people were thinking about, what people were experiencing at that particular moment in history. Another character who sort of jumps off the page, really, is Fourier Coral, a ceramicist, really, focusing on ceramic works. And she is almost portrayed in the book as a symbol, really, of this era, as a kind of cosmopolitan artist who worked in the realm of craft and 
fit perfectly this profile of the creative individual emerging in this era who could help integrate the developing world into the global economy. So she was this almost elite tastemaker, a multilingual sophisticate you describe her as. She was a teacher, a craftsperson, and therefore she represented many of the themes that you explore in the book. Could you just talk a bit about Fourier and how she fits into this picture as well? Fourier was a member of the very famous uh, Shakir Pasha family, a family as well-known and um, storied in a kind of Ottoman historical context as it was Bohemian in the 20th century, and a family that actually produced a number of Turkey's most important modernist figures, not just Furia Kural, but also uh, Farhanisa Zeid, Ali Berger, the writer Ali Harnas Balakjusa. Uh, so really this artistic family that plays a kind of key role in this period more generally. Furia's distinct approach was, or a distinct artistic goal, was to really blend and kind of hybridize the Ottoman Islamic tile tradition that she had grown up with in Istanbul, those sort of brilliant, brightly colored tiles that you see along the walls of mosques and countless other monuments, and to blend that with abstract painting that she had then studied in Paris in the 1940s. So it was a really, really unique, distinct art form. She would produce large-scale tiles that, from a distance, looked like paintings, but were actually, of course, made of ceramic. So this kind of um, hybrid medium that was very uh, unusual at the time. And yes, she has an incredible story of how she got herself a Rockefeller Foundation fellowship in 1957. She managed to meet a man named John Marshall, a associate director for the humanities at the Rockefeller Foundation, and in conversation with him, convince him that the Rockefeller Foundation should not just fund these kind of more typical economic development programs, focusing, say, on public health or education initiatives, but that they should perhaps fund artists as well, because artists in this perspective could also play a part in Turkey's economic development. She makes a very kind of canny argument here that if only the Rockefeller Foundation would bring her to the U.S. for nine months, teach her how to make her own ceramics glazes, and then send her back to Turkey, she could then catalyze an entire industry in Turkey, an entire ceramics industry, drawing on her knowledge, teaching other ceramicists how to use it, and actually stimulate the national economy. This doesn't actually happen, but it is this kind of iconic moment when you see an artist very strategically learning to speak the language of kind of international development that was so dominant at the time. And she manages to become in that way the very first actually artist from the Middle East that the Rockefeller Foundation funds at that time. I suppose stylistically as well as you're describing it there, it can only really be understood in this particular context because you're talking about her there taking some of these old Ottoman design ideas, blending them with an almost abstract expressionist sensibility of this era. That is almost unimaginable even 10 years before she was working. It was completely unimaginable in that paradigm of the early Republican aesthetic of the prioritization of modernity and realist aesthetics. So again, there she sort of represents this era particularly well, I think. 
Absolutely. And actually, you know, her ability to use that international language of gestural abstraction is received very well, in particular by American audiences, because, of course, this is the moment in 1957. She has an exhibition in Washington, D.C. at the end of her fellowship. This is the moment when abstract expressionism has really, really taken the American scene by storm. It's the moment when Jackson Pollock is being featured in Life magazine. And so the American art scene that receives her really sees her use of this abstract form as proof of not just her modernity, but also of her country's modernity. It plays into this kind of discourse around Turkey as this incredibly sort of precocious member of a world community that has managed to undertake hothouse modernization at this incredible rate and has really succeeded in doing so. And Furia, as a female artist who is showing up in D.C. and demonstrating her capacity capacity to use abstract painting, but in her own uniquely sort of Turkish way, is received quite well uh, by American audiences for that reason. One of the things you do towards the end of the book is you examine the more contemporary era. Again, the artistic scene in Istanbul, in Turkey, and you contextualize it within the political context and the international economic context, essentially in the same way that you approach the 1950s. So you talk about Istanbul Modern, of course, very famous, very symbolic gallery that opened in 2004. And you historically contextualize that gallery in this particular moment. Obviously, these were the early years of the AKP. Then Prime Minister Erdogan actually gave a speech at the inauguration of Istanbul Modern. And it really did, as you describe in the book, symbolize the hope of that era, this dominant belief really in openness, Western orientation, etc. Turkey was, you know, had these EU ambitions. And it was obviously the dawn of that era of, quote, cool Istanbul. And obviously, Istanbul Modern as a as an actual site was engaging very closely with some of the more the broader international trends for galleries being opened in industrial warehouses. So the Tate Modern in London was opened four years before, and that was obviously opened in an old repurposed industrial facility. Istanbul Modern basically copied that. And, you know, there were a number of other similar galleries around the world that were opening in, in the similar thing. So you, you really do contextualize Istanbul Modern in that era. And I think that's a, a really nice sort of way of approaching almost historicizing particular eras. Obviously, you do exactly the same for the 1950s. Just to talk about Istanbul Modern briefly, you know, what that symbolized at the time and, and how that fits into this broader historicization project, essentially, that, uh, that your book is part of. As you said, Istanbul Modern has been incredibly important for understanding the history of Turkish modernism since it opened in 2004. It has been able to highlight artists who had not been seen publicly for a really long time to collaborate with the biennial and really become a kind of international hub and produce an international profile in a way that that had not really been accomplished by state museums previously. As you said, I think it's key to see it in the kind of longer historical context and actually comparing that early 2000s moment with the 1950s moment, one of the really strong parallels that jumps out is the way in which arts institutions or art 
were understood as helping to demonstrate Turkey's European credentials specifically. So in the 1950s, we see Turkey joining the Marshall Plan, joining the European Economic Community, really taking all of these major political strides to become an integral part of a European community. And the modernist conversations taking place at that time are always in reference to that in some way, shape, or form. Similarly, we see with Istanbul Modern in 2004, not just then Prime Minister Erdogan giving a speech there, but also international heads of state from major European powers sending statements and messages of enthusiasm that explicitly say this museum helps prove that Turkey is really part of a kind of longer European uh, heritage, part of a bigger European community. So the kind of geopolitical uh, framings of those two moments, the 50s, and then that 2004 moment when it opened, the echoes are are almost eerie. (laughs) And you see even, actually, I I mentioned in the conclusion of the book, something of a repetition of these kind of developmentalist narratives from this earlier Cold War moment cropping up again, even in the museum's exhibitions and designs. In other words, the museum reiterating these longstanding narratives about Turkey's kind of ability to modernize quickly and its a long history of accelerated development as one of its distinguishing characteristics. All of this, of course, accomplished in the medium of exhibitions and art. And obviously, Istanbul Modern's new premises also tells us something about the present age because it's down there. I don't actually think it's been opened yet, but uh, it's about to be opened soon, I think. Down there in uh, Galata Port, bit of a notorious project, basically landfill filling in the Bosphorus there on the coast. Bit of an eyesore, pretty horrific project, to be quite honest with you. And Istanbul Modern has been relocated there and again expressing this particularly rapacious, crude commercial logic of the uh, present age and Istanbul Modern, again, almost 20 years after it was opened back down there. Is that been opened yet or is it going to be opened and what do people say about it? I'm not sure when I hesitate to to pronounce specifically on the opening date, because I think these things all have changed a lot due to COVID, if nothing else. But I will say one of the other elements of Istanbul Modern that is such a kind of powerful historical connector is simply its location in the city. Fundakla, Karakay, these are all locations where the State Art Academy has been for a long time, where the state art collections have been for a long time there along that particular portion of the waterfront. And so when Istanbul Modern opened in a former warehouse there in 2004, it was in a lot of ways a kind of continuation or a sort of expansion on this very longstanding kind of arts community in that particular area. As you said, this new Galataport framing of it shifts that zone unequivocally into the kind of moment of neoliberal globalization. It puts art now at the heart of a 21st century development project and recodes that kind of waterfront art relationship once again, but this time in terms of 21st century tourism, of the cruise ships that will be pulling up right there, a kind of reconfiguration of art's place in the city's landscape and in the nation's landscape that is just so powerfully, I think, embodied by that waterfront location. Just to conclude, the book is really wonderfully and generously illustrated with examples of artworks, photos. Just wonder, was it difficult to get the rights to all those? It must have been quite a difficult project, I'd imagine, to to get all those, to, to get permission to 
reproduce all those images. Would I be right to think that? William, you are warming my art historian's heart because that is the invisible labor of the art historian that uh, nobody ever fully realizes how difficult it is. It was, on the one hand, difficult, again, in part because of COVID and, and travel restrictions. Normally, I would have been able to travel to visit family members to request rights to reproduce you know, artists' uh, artworks or photographs. But I will say, in general, it was also not difficult in that everyone who's mentioned there um, in those captions was incredibly generous to give the rights to publish those images. So everyone from the State Art Museum itself, which I think provided almost a dozen images for publication, to the individual members of families who were offering to share what to them was very um, private or personal materials, very close to their their hearts. So in general, yes, it is always, I think, the, a labor of love to get those image rights, but much like the many people that spoke to me and shared memories and shared old clippings and photos from their personal collections, the individuals thanked there were incredibly generous with giving those image permissions for the publication. That was Sarah Neal-Smith. Many thanks to her for joining for episode number 167. Remember, if you enjoy Turkey Book Talk, you can support us by joining as a member on Patreon. Membership gets you that 35% discount on all Turkey Ottoman history books published by IB Taurus and Bloomsbury, transcripts of every interview, transcripts of the entire archive of interviews, access to an archive of over 200 book reviews written by me, and links via email to articles and other content related to the subject of each episode. For all that, just go to Turkey Book Talk's Patreon account and pledge $3, €3 or £2.50 per episode. You can also support Turkey Book Talk by rating it or writing a positive review wherever you listen. Follow via our website turkeybooktalk.com, our Twitter, Facebook or Instagram accounts or all of them. Recommend Turkey Book Talk to a friend or indeed a foe. And I always enjoy hearing from listeners, so do send any feedback or abuse to williamjohnarmstrong at gmail.com. Finally, let me once again remind you to check out a friend of Turkey Book Talk, Turkey Recap. Turkey Recap is a weekly email newsletter that brings together all major developments in Turkey over the past seven days, links to interesting articles and some excellent puns. They've also got a Slack channel now for signed up members who want more. Just go to turkeyrecap.com and follow the links there to subscribe. But until our next episode of Turkey Book Talk in a couple of weeks, thank you very much for listening. Thank you.